throw together. Father, our prayer is that you would now reveal yourself to us in your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand who you are as God. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to see the wonder of what you have done, to marvel at the cosmic story you are telling, that the world exists by your word. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to feel the praise and the gladness and the gratitude and the adoration and the love for you that we, we should feel in, in response to the fact that you, you sent your son and he took on flesh and though he was almighty, he allowed himself to be taken and beaten and scorned and crucified. And then in your great power, Lord, you raised him from the dead, ensuring the outcome of the story. Lord, we ask that you would cause the truths of the faith to take root in the soil of our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to bear fruit, fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. We pray that you do it by the power of the risen Christ. Amen. I want to invite you to imagine that you are a great novelist with both a great imagination and a great memory, someone like J.R.R. Tolkien. And you set out to tell a story. And this story is going to go for thousands and thousands of years. As the inventor of the story, you would be there before it all began, right? And as the one who created the world in which the story takes place, there would be nowhere any of your, creator, your, your created uh, characters could go where they could escape you, right? And then also, as the, as the one who's telling this story, you're going to be there when all the story is finished. When all is, is said and done, you will still be there. Now, there's some differences between J.R.R. Tolkien and God. Uh, for instance, Tolkien, as he got into the writing of The Hobbit, uh, once he had finished that book and he got into The Lord of the Rings, stuff started happening around him, like World War II. And it, and it deepened and darkened his perspective. And, and it, it caused him to go back and actually change some things about The Hobbit because of the way that, that things were developing in The Lord of the Rings. So he didn't know where the story was going when he started. And that is not the way it is with God. Uh, there's another, there's another novelist I want to introduce here because of the nature of this day. Uh, another novelist named um, Dorothy Sayers, she wrote a series of books, and in the life of her main character, Lord Peter Wimsey, she created a void. Lord, Lord Peter Wimsey, he needed something. He needed, he needed the novelist herself. And what what Dorothy Sayers did eventually in this series of novels was she wrote herself into the story. She became the character that the protagonist, the main character of the story, needed. And, and, and they wind up falling in love and, and getting together as the stories work them, themselves out. 
in the true story of the world, the Lord has written a, a God-shaped void into reality, and then he has written himself in Christ the Son into the story and allowed himself to be crucified and raised from the dead to ensure the outcome of this, this grand story that God is telling. I, I open with this illustration because I think that it will help us to understand some things that are going on in Psalm 139. And I would invite you to open your, your Bible to Psalm 139, and we will look together at this, this fantastic uh, uh, piece of Scripture. David writes here, uh, he, he, he puts a, a superscription on this psalm to the choir master, a psalm of David. So David is writing here, and in the, in the first section of this psalm, verses 1 through 6, David is going to marvel at, God's, uh, at, at who God is and, and at everything that God knows about him. And, and it's almost as though David is thinking through these realities as he works his way through this psalm. And then after he's thought about who God is and what God knows about him and where God is and how long God will last, he's then, in verses 7 through 12, he's going to start thinking about where he might go to escape this God. And, and the answer he's going to find is there's nowhere to go to escape this God. And then at the end of the psalm, uh, in verses 13 through 24, David is going to begin to reflect on similar things that he had started with at the beginning of the psalm, and then he's going to conclude with some emotional realities that are natural outworkings of, of the things that he has meditated on. So let's, let's start in verses 1 through 3, and we'll notice how, how the things that David starts talking about at the beginning of the psalm are going to be the things that he ends talking about. So look, look with me at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Uh, just observe, look down at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Same, same terminology. Uh, David says here, you have searched me. The, the, the word that's used here, you have searched me, is used for the way that Jonathan sounds out Saul. Jonathan tells David, I'm going to go find out where my father is. And he uses this same word. It's a word that indicates a process, isn't it? It's like David is saying, you've, ex you've, you've examined me, you've searched me, you've sounded me out to figure out who I am. You have searched me and known me. But from other things that David is going to say in this psalm, it's clear that God doesn't need to conduct any searches. So what we're up against here is, is we're trying as creatures, as characters in the story that God is telling, we're trying to figure out ways to talk about God that makes sense to us and also communicate reality. People, people use words like accommodated. What's, what's happening in this psalm is the realities of who God is are being accommodated to human understanding. And God is being spoken of in human terms. We have to conduct searches. And so to communicate the idea that God knows everything, David uses this, this uh, metaphorical description of God searching him. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then he talks about, he, he moves from the way the Lord has examined him into the way that the Lord knows when he sits down and when he rises up. You know when I sit down, he says there in verse 2, and when I rise up. And then he moves 
from, uh, from this detailed, thorough, exhaustive knowledge of him into his motivations. He says there at the end of verse 2, you discern my thoughts from afar. There may be a connection with Psalm 138 here. If you look back at Psalm 138, verse 6, where David had written, the haughty he knows from afar. This kind of connection may indicate that David knows that when God searches him and when God knows his thoughts, he doesn't necessarily like what he sees. He sees that David has pride. And, and this, this may prompt David, when we get down to verse 7, to say things like, where am I going to hide from you? Where am I going to flee from you? And what, what this is getting at is the fact, and, and if you're here this morning, I, I trust you feel this. You should feel this. If God knows everything that you think, if God knows everything there is to know about you, we need a cross, don't we? We need a crucified Messiah. Because there are going to be unpleasant things that God sees if he, if he sees all of our thoughts. David then goes on to say in verse 3, he says, You search out my path everywhere I go, and my lying down everywhere I rest. And, and by mentioning his lying down, I think what David is getting at is there's not a moment when I go to sleep and you decide you don't need to pay attention to me anymore. No, the Lord is always constantly aware of where David is, what he's thinking, and, and, and what, what's going on in the inner motivations of David's heart. This is a comprehensive knowledge. So in these first three verses... David is, is communicating that the Lord has measured out the paths he tra treads. He, he knows how long he's going to sleep. And this leads to the conclusion at the end of verse 3. You are acquainted with all my ways. So in these first three verses, David essentially says, you know everything about me that there is to know. And this is true of us too. So I would, I would just pose to you an a question that you can use by way of application to your life. The Lord is always aware of you. Are you always aware of him? Maybe you saw this week uh, this, this string of, of tweets that somebody put up, I don't know who the person is, about all the things that Google is tracking about you and all the ways that YouTube knows where you've gone, what you've looked at, and they don't let go of this data. They know exactly where you've been. They know when you made those searches. They know, and, and they store this information, and you might have been in an incognito browser or whatever, and they still know where that information came from, where those search terms were used. Uh, what web, they know everything there is to know, and what they're going to do is they're going to use that information to try to manipulate you into buying things. That's what they're going to do with it, probably. They're going to try to advertise to you. But it's scary, isn't it, to think that they're always watching us. Well, how much more should we feel the fear of God when we contemplate that he is always aware of what we're looking at? He is always aware of what's going on in our hearts, what's informing our choices. In verse 4, look at what David says here. Even before a word is on my tongue, 
Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And here's where I think this this, uh, illustration that I opened with helps us. If we think of an author, he's going to know what his character is going to say before the character says it, right? And he's he's not going to forget the dialogue that he's written into the text. And what David is saying here is that the Lord knows what he's going to say before he says it. This shows, by the way, that he didn't need to search and examine David like he talked about in verse 1. He already knows what David is going to say. It also communicates to us that somehow the Lord's knowledge is not constrained by time that we're locked into, right? We experience this sequence of seconds that add up to moments, that add up to hours and days and weeks and months and years and so forth, and the Lord is above that. The Lord is not constrained by the the time in which he has locked all of us. And so before these events happen, God knows what's going to happen. And after these words are spoken, God does not forget what words have been spoken. So he doesn't forget what's past, and nor is he yet to know what's going to happen. He knows it all now. The Lord's knowledge is unconstrained. It's not as though some some people want to suggest that the future choices of free creatures don't yet exist for God to know them. That is not true. God is not constrained by time. God is above and outside of time, and he knows what free creatures are going to say before they say it. He's the one who's writing this story. There's going to be a similar statement made down in verse 16 where David is going to say that God wrote down every one of his days before any of them ever came to be. So these these two verses, verses 4 and 16, they kind of work together. And then David says in verse 5, and I think he's, he's still developing this idea that God knows everything there is to know about him and that God was there before he was born and he'll be there after his death. He says in verse 5, you hem me in behind and before. So, so God is before David happens and God is after David happens. He knows fully what is yet to happen in his future. He encompasses us behind and before And then David seems to speak of God's sovereign power and control in his life. When David says there in verse 5, And you lay your hand upon me. The Lord's comprehensive knowledge and ability to transcend time, this seems to short-circuit David's computations and considerations. It seems to blow his mind. What what David is, is contemplating is the fact that God is eternal. And what this means is that God is not, as I've said, God is not constrained by time. God is not waiting for the next moment to happen to see what's going to happen. He's above that moment. God is not, there are no boundaries or limits on his knowledge. He's omniscient. And the fact that the Lord is eternal and omniscient confronts David with wonders that are beyond his ability to comprehend. Thoughts that are exalted beyond his powers. And so he says in verse 6 here, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This reminds me of Psalm 131 verse 1 where where David had said, 
I, I, my, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But nevertheless, David is contemplating the Lord. And he's thinking about the fact that, that God is, is eternal and omniscient. And that seems to lead to the conclusion here in verses 7 through 12 that God is also everywhere. He's not limited by time. His knowledge is not limited by, his, by, by anything, nor is his presence limited by anything. So look at verse 7. David says, he asks, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? You remember Jonah? Jonah gets a commission that he doesn't like, and he decides to flee from the presence of the Lord. And David is saying, that's a failed uh, venture. You're never going to be able to flee from the presence of the Lord. There's nowhere you can go where he is not going to be aware of you. This one who transcends the limitations imposed upon the creation, he doesn't know these limitations, this God. He, he's, he's, not, he's not bound by the progression of moment from, from one moment to the next. He stands eternal forever. His knowledge has no limits on it. And, and here David is saying, there are no locational constraints on him. You know, if he's one place, it's not like us where I can't be two places at once. David seems to be saying in these verses, God is everywhere all the time. And, and the way that he accomplishes that is he starts talking about these polar opposites. Look at verse 8. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. And then he says, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The, the highest place you can go, the lowest place you can go. He uses this vertical uh, image to say God is at the top and he's at the bottom. And the implication is everywhere else in between. And then he, then he takes it horizontal in verse 9. Because uh, the morning comes up from the east. He says, if I take the wings of the morning. And then he says, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. In, in ancient Israel, if you were facing the sun, if you're looking to the sunrise, behind you would be the, the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. And so often in Israel, they'll, they'll refer to the sea when they mean to refer to the west. And so what he's saying is, from east to west, essentially. From the wings of the morning to the backside of the sea. Even there, verse 10, your hand shall lead me. David is saying that there is no escaping God's power. There is no escaping God's presence. There is no escaping God's control. He moves from uh, up and down, side to side now, into darkness in verse 11. He says in verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. And, and this is an interesting expression. The same verb used to translate the word cover here, uh, or, or the translated cover here, that same verb is used in Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman is going to bruise or crush the head of the serpent. So I think David is saying something like this. If I say, the darkness is going to crush me, I think he's talking about an overwhelming darkness, a darkness that's going to end him. And I don't know if he has a, a metaphorical darkness in mind, 
something like a spiritual malaise or depression, or if he has something like a, a, a literal physical darkness in mind. Either way, look at what he says. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Maybe you felt this way. The sun comes up in the morning, but it still feels dark. The, the light about you feels like night. David's response to that is, even the darkness doesn't make you dark. Even the darkness is not dark to you. Note, note carefully what David is saying. David is not saying something about himself overcoming the darkness. David is saying the darkness is not dark to you. You, Lord, bring light. Our hope is not in us. Our hope is not in our ability to cause the sun come up metaphorically in our lives or to cause things to be better. Our hope is the one for whom the darkness is not dark. Look at what he goes on to say there in verse 12. The night is bright as the day. The, look, look at verse 11. The light about me be night. Well, because of the Lord, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. David is saying, from the highest point to the lowest, from the farthest east to the farthest west, all places in between, there's nowhere to go to escape the Lord. But if you know the Lord, he's the one who brings light out of darkness. He's our hope. You may be sitting here this morning thinking that your situation is hopeless. Many, many people get there. The situation is hopeless. If you know the Lord, there's always hope. If you know the Lord, even if it remains dark around you, it's not dark to him. It's not dark to him. And he has the ability to lead you through the darkness. He's the, one, he's the creator of light. And he's not telling a dystopian novel right? The Lord is not telling one of these stories that ends badly. The Lord is not limited by temporal experience. He's eternal. There are no constraints on his knowledge. He is omniscient. There are no boundaries on his location. He is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. And I think it's kind of helpful to think in terms of a novelist, right? If a novelist is writing a story, J.R.R. Tolkien, well, yeah, he can be at the Misty Mountains and in the Shire at the same time. That's no problem for him, is it? Same with the Lord. How can he be? Well, I don't, if I'm a character in The Lord of the Rings, I don't understand how Tolkien can be in two places at once or everywhere all at once. But I, that's because I'm a character. I'm created. I'm not like the creator. For the creator, the boundaries of the created realm don't exist. And, and David goes to the way that God is his creator in verse 13. He says in verse 13, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. How can God know everything there is to know about David? How can God know everything there is to know about us? He's the creator. He made this world. And, and look at David's instructive response to that in verse 14. 
He says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David is not taking credit here. And he's not boasting in his humanity here. He's praising the creator. And, and I, would, I would encourage you to take a good look at what you are as a human being. Not so that you can boast. Not so that you can take credit. But, but think about the way that your hair just grows. Well, at least it, most of it grows, you know, for a good portion of your life. Some, of the, some, some, some get to a place where it stops doing that, but that's okay. Think about the way that you didn't, you didn't have to ask to have fingernails. You didn't have to ask to have this thumb that works so nicely. These bones that if they get broken, they'll actually grow back together. We didn't do anything. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. This is an astonishing accomplishment. A human being that God has made is an astonishing accomplishment of creativity and engineering and architecture and ingenuity. It's a stunning masterpiece. We are. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And David's response to this ought to be our response to this. I praise you because of this. And then he says in verse 14, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And then he has this sort of concluding statement of this section here in verse 15. He says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Uh, David, David's point is not to assert that people are somehow woven together in the lower places of the earth. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he's using a, a figurative way to say it's a secret how people come together. It's a secret. But God knows every detail of the miracle. We don't perceive it. We don't see it. I'm sure David knew that babies are formed in wombs. That's obvious to anybody with eyes, right? But what David is saying is, I don't see where that happens. I don't see how that happens. I don't know how a baby receives life and how the divine hand causes it to grow. But God knows God knows every aspect of the process, the shaping, the growing, all, of, all that's involved in the gestation of a baby. God knows it. And then verse 16, which is like verse 4 again. David says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So let's just put this together. Before any of the days happened, when as yet there was none of them, God wrote every day that was formed for David. And I think that's a divine passive. God is forming the days for him. And he's written those days all in his book. So here's, again, I think, warrant for this illustration of a, a novelist. God has written the whole story before any of it takes place. Does God have a book? No, I think this is a figure of speech. I don't think God literally wrote these things down somewhere. I, th I think that this is a way of, of communicating this for our imagination so that we can somehow understand what's going on here. Let me, let me, let me offer you what I hope you'll find is comfort from this. Every day of your life 
was known to God before it happened. Nothing that you can do, nothing that will happen to you is a surprise to the divine novelist. And, again, this is where, this is where faith and trust come in. If you don't have faith and trust, I don't know where you're going to be. You're going to trust something. But, but what, I'm, what I'm suggesting to you is you should trust the heart of the novelist. You should trust the one who's writing the story. We, the characters in the story, we don't know how it's going to play out. We don't know how these, to us, they look like tragedies or heartbreaks or devastating circumstances. We don't know how they're going to be shaped and used, but there's somebody forming this. There's somebody writing this story. He's already written it. And we can trust his heart. He's a, he's a good storyteller. He doesn't hate his characters. He loves his people. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't hear any of this as good news. You, you hear... You hear me say, God knows every thought you've ever had. God knows every motivation and every appetite that prompted those words that he knew you were going to speak, that, that resulted in those actions that he saw you do, even though you were trying to hide it from any, any other prying eyes. And you think to yourself, I'm in deep trouble. We're, we're in a good place already if you're thinking like that. We're in big trouble if you don't think like that. So, so everybody in this room should feel, if God knows and sees everything that I've ever thought and done and said, I got no hope before him. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He knows everything. But let me, let me remind you of, an, of the words of an earlier psalm. Look with me back at Psalm 101. I'm sorry, 103. Look at Psalm 103, and let's start in verse 9. David, again, here writes, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Note the use of that word anger. There is an appropriate way for God to be angry. Just as there's an appropriate way for an earthly father to be angry if his children are being abused or if his children are doing things that will lead to themselves being, their own lives being ruined, it's appropriate for him to be angry with them. There's an appropriate way. Some people, it's like they have no imagination, some theologians. They, they cannot imagine how it would be righteous for the living God to be angry. Well, well Read some fiction, you know? Get out more. Think about life a little bit more. Think about how a loving father could be angry about, in a righteous way about what his children are doing to themselves. It's a good thing. But look at what it says. He will not keep his anger forever. And then look at what it goes on to say in verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. We'll get to how he's able to do this in just a second. He goes on, verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How does he do that? Well, it's what Caleb read earlier in the service. 
where, where Paul talks about how God had passed over former sins. And because of this passing over of former sins, God's justice could be called into question. But Paul said, Paul said there in Romans 3 that God put Christ forward as a sacrifice of propitiation. And maybe you saw this quote on Denny's blog this week from Jonathan Edwards of Satisfaction for Sin. Edwards writes, God dealt with him, Jesus, as if he had been exceedingly angry with him and as though he had been the object of his dreadful wrath. This made all the sufferings of Christ the more terrible to him because they were from the hand of his Father, whom he infinitely loved. The anger that God felt for his children, he redirected at Christ. It was an effect of God's wrath that he forsook Christ, Edwards continues. This caused Christ to cry out once and again, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he suffered in our place. So that, this is crucial, if you're visiting this morning and maybe you don't identify as a Christian or maybe you think, yeah, I'm a Christian, but there's not a whole lot of, there's not a whole lot of Christian stuff going on in your life. You're not very regular at church. You don't read your Bible. You don't think about these things very often. You need to understand that in order for God not to treat you as your sins have deserved, as Psalm 103 says, you have to turn away from those sins. And you have to consciously, volitionally, willfully decide, I'm going to trust, I'm going to place all my hope and trust in Jesus. Yes, God knows everything there is to know about me. And yes, that's a crushing load of guilt and shame and fear. But I'm going to hope in Jesus. And because of what he did on the cross, I'm going to believe that God can forgive me and make it so that as far as the east is from the west, he's removed my sin from me. And I think all this leads David to say in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, Psalm 139, verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. But it's not just, it's not just that David knows God's forgiveness. David also knows what God has promised to him. In particular, I think again, just like at the end of Psalm 137, I said I think David was meditating on Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. So also again here, I think David is meditating on Psalm 2 and thinking about the way that God promised. I'm going to raise up a king from your line and I'm going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever and he's going to roll back death and pain and curse and hell. He's going to overcome all that and it's going to be a new Eden and a new heaven and new earth. God promises this to David. And David's response is, how precious to me are your thoughts, or you could translate this word, your aims, your purposes. Your purposes for the king from my line, David is saying, are precious to me. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Why does he put those statements together? I think the idea is, I go to sleep enumerating all of your promises. I go to sleep thinking about all the things I have to be grateful for. I go, as I lay down in my bed at night, I contemplate the, the glories of God. And when I wake up, you're still there. Now, that, this suggestion that Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and Psalm 137, 8 and 9 are in view in verse 17, I think explains 
Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Where does that come from? Some pe again, you know, people have problems with this. They think, oh, we got this great theological meditation on all this wonderful stuff, and now all of a sudden David's bloodthirsty. No, that's not quite right. A better way to come at this is David is thinking about God's purposes. He's thinking about God's future kingdom. And, and Psalm 110 says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Who are those kings? They're the rebels in Psalm 2 that are scheming against the Lord and against his anointed. They're trying to lead people away from God. They're trying to ruin people's lives. And David says, oh, that you would bring the kingdom. You know what this is like? This is like somebody teaching his disciples to pray. Your kingdom come. That's what this is. That's just another way of saying this. Your kingdom come is just another way of praying, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. And then David gives them a warning, a warning that's just like Psalm 2. You remember Psalm 2, verse 10? Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth, lest he become angry and you be destroyed in the way. David gives them another warning here in verse 19. O men of blood, depart from me. And then he turns to the Lord and he starts talking about them in Psalm 2, one through three terms. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed, and they're plotting vanity. Verse 20, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. These idolaters are trying to make themselves God. They're trying to introduce a different form of righteousness, a different end goal for the kingdom. They're trying to set themselves up in God's place. And David is saying to the Lord, haven't you had enough of this? Oh, that you would put an end to this. And then it's like David decides it's time for picking sides. Which side are you on? Look at verse 21. David says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? If they're going to plot against you, if they're going to scheme against you, if they're going to put forward some other standard of good, and then even as they try to corrupt people's understanding of righteousness, they want to use their, their limited understanding of your character to critique you. Which is actually, when people complain about God, that's what they have to do. They, they have to use God's standard of goodness and try to turn it against him. And David says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I, do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. What David is saying is, Lord, I am fully and completely on your side in this conflict. I'm with you against everybody that's trying to corrupt and ruin your world, against everybody that's trying to, to seduce and destroy your people. I'm with you against them. If you love goodness, if you love righteousness, if you want to see justice, and we all should, and, and we can all point to ways in which we we'd like to see more justice. There's lots, of, there's lots of ways that things are wicked in this world. And, and if these things trouble you, if, I mean, take your pick among the issues. If, you wanna, if you're a lover of goodness and you want to see justice, you ought to love Jesus. You ought to long for his kingdom. You ought to trust in God. If you want equal distribution of punishment and reward, you ought to love the righteous judge. And you ought to long for the coming king. And his name is Jesus. 
Now, that brings us to verse 23, where David says again, Search me, O God, and know my heart. And I think in context, I think in context, David is saying, Lord, I know that there are ways in me that I'm seduced by sin. There, there, are, there are pockets and corners of my heart where I want to make myself Lord. And I want to indulge my selfishness or my greed or my lust or whatever. And he's saying, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. It's like he's saying, look, I know there's that stuff in there. And I want, I want to bring myself to you. And I want you to get that stuff out of me. Look at what he says in verse 20, 24. See if there be any grievous way in me. Literally, you could translate this, see if there is any way of pain in me. A way that causes pain, I think, is the idea. And lead me in the way everlasting. It's like David is saying, there's a, there's a way that, that causes pain and leads to death. And there's a way that's everlasting. And, and I want you to search me and try me and purge me of any sympathy with the way of pain. And then lead me in this way everlasting. God knows our every day. As I was, as I was thinking about this, um, my wife and I were talking about um, Psalm 139, and, um, and she was reflecting on the way that um, this, this reality that God knows our every day, and, and God wrote these days for us, can be, can be really comforting when we don't understand the events that take place in our lives, or as... As, as she and I have encountered, maybe, you, maybe you've known people like this. They get to the end of their lives. They're very old. Their, their uh, movements are constrained. They can't get out much. And, and I, we've known several people who get to that point in their life, and, and they begin to say things like, I just don't know why the Lord still has me here. I don't know why my life continues. And that made me think of, of this poem that John Milton wrote, which I'm not going to read to you, but I'm, I'm going to tell you about it. John Milton was going blind. He, he, he loved to read. He loved to study. And he was a genius. And he was losing his sight. And, and, he, and he, in this poet, poem, he starts reflecting on how this one thing that I'm good at, studying and then, and then producing poetry, as a blind man, am I going to be able to do this? And, and as he's laboring over this, he comes to this conclusion where he, he says, God doesn't need man's work or his gifts. He wants people who bear his mild yoke. Those are the ones who serve him best. And he says, his state is kingly, God's state is. Thousands at his bidding speed in post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and it's like Milton is saying, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm going blind. I'm not going to be able to see. And, and God's not going to be able to commission me to go accomplish these things. But they also serve who stand at the king and wait. God knows your every day. And, and our job is to bear his mild yoke and to know him. To know him as the one who sees and knows us who transcends time and space, who is the world's true creator. And we want, to, we want to side with him because he knows us. And so he wrote himself into the story to redeem us, to fill the need that we have, 
in ways that we never could have done for ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for making us fearfully, wonderfully. We thank you, Lord, that had you not revealed yourself to us, we never could have come to these conclusions about you. We never would have known that you are above and outside time. We never would have known that there can be no locational constraints on you. We never would have known that you know everything there is to know before it ever happens, and you never forget it once it happens. And we certainly wouldn't have known a love that, that sees and knows from before the foundation of the world what the need is going to be, and that plans to write itself into the story, to uphold justice, to bear your anger, to satisfy the demands and to make reconciliation and then rise from the dead. Lord, we praise you. We worship you. We thank you for, for revealing yourself to us. And we ask that you'd help us to walk with you to the very end in Christ. Amen.